Radio Land, Podcast Bill, and all the ships at sea. My name is Kate Wolf, and you are listening to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. Joining me today are my co-hosts, Medea Ocher, the managing editor of LARB. Hello, Kate. And Eric Newman, the gender and sexuality editor of LARB. Hi, Kate. Hi, Eric. Hi, Medea. So today we're listening to some interviews that we recorded live at the LA Times Festival of Books. We had a long day. We spoke to many of the authors who are visiting, and it's a rare chance for us because uh, we live in Los Angeles, and nobody wants to send anybody out here. It's like we're out middle of nowhere. It's terrible. But this is one weekend, <laughs> one weekend a year where we do get some visits and some very exciting guests. And so we had the pleasure of talking to everybody in the literary world in one day. Yeah. And I noticed a lot of people were flying in in the morning and flying home in the evening. It's, nobody so wants to no stay. One, you're right. No one wants to be it's in a LA. desert wasteland. Oh, terrible. <laughs> terrible. It is a wasteland. So we spoke with Morgan Parker, who's a poet who lives in Brooklyn. She's the author of There Are More Beautiful Things Than Beyonce, which is a new collection of poems. And Fiona Mazel, whose name I pronounced wrong when I introed her to my shame and embarrassment. Her new novel is called A Little More Human. She was a good sport when I said her name wrong. So thank you, Fiona. She was great. And last but not least, the legend, Joyce Carol Oates who is kind enough to speak with us, and her new novel is called The Book of American Martyrs. I cannot believe how prolific she is. I know. I mean, it is just like, I cannot imagine what that writing practice is. Well, she says she's not that prolific. Oh, she that's writes right. yeah. I was just, just 40 in the books. morning and yeah. at night, so uh. it's almost all day, but... <laughs> It was great to talk to her, and she was very gracious. So I also really loved our interview with Morgan Parker. She, As did I. I mean, she is blowing up everywhere, and her work is so interesting and intimate and just wonderful to read. And she proved to be—it's not— always the case that the people who you meet in person are as exciting in person as they are on the page, and Morgan totally is that. Oh, yeah. And she gave us an opportunity to talk about Beyonce, so I am forever grateful. <laughs> yeah, me too. Okay, so let's listen to her, Morgan Parker. So we're here live at the LA Times Festival of Books, and this is Kate Wolf of the LARB Radio Hour. We're talking to Morgan Parker. Morgan is a poet and editor based in Brooklyn. Her writing has been published in places such as the Paris Review, the New York Times, and the Nation. And she's the author of two books of poetry, Other People's Comforts Keep Me Up at Night, released by Switchback Books in 2015, and There Are More Beautiful Things Than Beyonce, which was published this year by Tin House Books. Morgan, thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. So tell us about your newest book. How long did it take you to write it? What was the inspiration? I think we, Beyonce seems... Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's in the she title. plays the main role. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure there was more, more beyond, beyond Beyonce, so... Yeah. yeah. Um, I was working on this book for something like five years. Um, so Beyonce then as you might imagine, was very different than Beyonce now. It's true. Um, So at the time that I started working on the book, it was right after she had done um, these collaborations with Lady Gaga. Mm. So, and I was really interested in, I was getting my MFA, um, and I was interested in these kind of like powerful women teaming up. Um, 
but it also was kind of like a jokey thing with a friend right. of mine where he was like how about you write a Beyonce poem and I'll write Gaga and then it's like we're collaborating <laughs> and it's based off their collaboration and like the video phones and all that stuff and we did that and then I now here I am. Like that's kind of okay. how that happened. Because I was, I found myself really surprised at how like fertile it was. I kind of was like, this is gonna be funny and weird. Um, it's like kind of a little bit of a challenge that I gave myself to summon all of this like glitz and glam and pop and celebrity, but also kind of talk about my usual sadnesses mm -hmm. um, and uh, concerns, like worldwide concerns. So it kind of was just an exercise in what will happen if I juxtapose these two things. Um, and it, yeah, it just was way more fertile than I thought. And so I kind of had a lot, I kept uncovering more and more, I guess, links. Um, you know, when Beyonce got pregnant, I was like, oh, uh, do I write about womanhood? Like, it's just kind of <laughs> following along with her and, and using that as just, like, a foil for my own writing was really interesting and fun. Yeah. And how do you think of Beyonce now, five years later, since she has sort of morphed into this I know. thing that she was not five years ago? I know. Yeah. Well, first of all, we all have me to thank for that. So <laughs> Thank you, She's certainly. I just, I, you know... Um, when I first started writing the book, people were like, why Beyonce? Like, what? And she kind of was, like, newly not Destiny's Child. Uh -huh. Like, she didn't really have uh, any kind of... She wasn't politicized at all. So that was... And now she really is. People are like, I get it, Beyonce. Because oh, this is all pre-Lemonade. Yeah. Pre-all of that. Yeah. Like, pre-Beyonce yeah. standing on a cop car, you know? So, right. Yeah. Truly, I spoke that into existence. You're welcome. Um, or she read my poems. You know what I mean? And it was, was like, like, oh, interesting. I get it. Yeah. 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 She's like, but somebody it, get me a cop car now. Right, right. Yeah, right. I'm going to stand on but top But there of is it. something about that that's interesting, like writing about pop and being like current pop versus like, say, writing around Diana Ross or like Nina Simone. Sure. Like that would be really different. But because things are happening to both of us, it almost felt like, I don't know, the book kind of came out of that. Like, I couldn't mm -hmm. have predicted what the book really would be. America right. grew, I grew, Beyonce grew, you know? And that all made its way into the book. Yeah. Well, can we talk about, like, how do you feel? Because in many ways, it's like, the book is is steeped in the kind of Obama era, mm -hmm. right? And that, and I think you've talked about this before, mm -hmm. right? Um, but what do you think of the book now? Or, like, yeah. how is the current political sensorium working in your work now? I'm, well, it's happening. <laughs> um, <laughs> I don't, I can't like address it head on. And I, sure. I kind of refuse to, I've never been a very like reactionary poet. Okay. I take a long time to kind of sit with things. You know, I look into the past. I love reading theory and just kind of like wrapping my head around things. So I'm not necessarily one to be like, I need to write about what is happening right now only. You know? Sure, sure. Um, so I, it's definitely sitting with me. And yeah. so that's making its way into uh, the poems. But I, I think a lot of the poems I'm working on now are more just kind of pointed at history as like right now, <laughs> you know? And kind of... Um, this idea that time is not linear and that mm. 
everything has always just been the same. It's basically the same old, same old. Like that's yeah. like right. kind of like yeah. the idea I keep circling around in a lot, a lot of my new poems. So pointing at different connections between the past, present, the future, and just thinking about repetition and, and cycles. That's great. So you're working right. on a new body of work now, or is this just, or how does it work as a poet? Um, do you try to, to write a poem every day? Does oh it, my god, I have a job. Like, what, <laughs> what do you guys? Yeah, I go to a field each day. And <laughs> That's like, yeah, what a beautiful I, life I sit you have in, a very in Brooklyn. Tree. <laughs> yeah, my rent somehow is paid. Like, <laughs> That's amazing. Brooklyn is free. It's oh, yeah. free there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, well, as long as you're making art. Yeah. <laughs> or macaroons. I thought it might hurt you. I thought it might, like, you know, you'd say, okay, I'm going to write, like, how yeah, long does yeah. it take? Because I know for some people, it, it, a poem is a fast mm-hmm. form, mm-hmm. and other people, you know, re- revise and revise Absolutely. and revise. So. And some people have to have a daily writing practice. I haven't quite figured that out for myself. I have, There have been times when I, you know, decide for a month I'll write every day. But I'm... I try to go easy on myself in totally. terms of like what makes a poem because really it's I can't just like write a poem in one sitting. I, I'll have to sit with it for a long time, um, and the editing really is kind of the making. The initial kind of utterance or idea, getting that on the page, is one thing, but then the kind of building and shaping of the poem uh, is kind of a longer process for me usually. Hmm. And how much is reading come into play? So much. Okay. I kind of describe my process in terms of like these different phases. So right now I'm in my collecting phase. Akashi. Where it's like I just kind of am looking at a lot of stuff, going to museums, reading, um, watching movies, listening to music, going down like Wikipedia K-holes, you know, just like <laughs> research and collecting and writing stuff down that interests me um, and that I just like find intriguing and maybe connected somehow and you know at some point I then will go to the page and kind of take all these notes from all these different places um, and you know put an album on and then just like decide how I want to play with that material. Oh so when, so when you were writing about Beyonce were you listening to Beyonce? I was listening to Beyonce but I also I was listening to a lot of other things right. so a lot but a lot of female recording artists but also, I mean, there's there's a lot of music in the book, actually. I made a playlist. You did? You can find it on Spotify. How? Ooh. Tell us how to find the playlist. It's called There Are More Beautiful Things Than Beyonce. <laughs> <laughs> it is okay. a playlist made by me, Morgan Parker. <laughs> I'm a marketing genius. That's what's happening. Right. <laughs> Give us tips. Um, but it's, and that is stuff, like, you'd be kind of surprised at what's in it. There's a lot of Beyonce, obviously, a lot of Jay-Z. Um, but, and like Rihanna. Mm. But there's also... A lot of jazz. Um, there's some punk in there. Like it's just anything that I was listening to um, while in the making of the book. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's and a lot of what's in there is referenced in the book. So like Earth, Wind, and Fire is referenced in the book. Uh, Delicate and Jumpy, Coltrane. So what? Like those things are in the book, but there's also stuff that I was listening to alongside it. Right. Um, and I don't know. I mean, I think that's interesting to know what people are taking in as they're like making something Um, because it is a lot of different spaces and and I kind of like thinking about a song or a poem that is the poetry version of say a song or Mm -hmm. say a movie you know so I really do think about making poems in that way of like you know I'll sit and just listen to in a sentimental mood for like 
a hundred times. Mm. And then like, what how, what does that look like as a poem? Mm. You know, like that's oh, okay. kind of how I, it's like, I think I have like synesthesia or something. <laughs> like it's, it's that kind of thing. Like how can I, and thinking about the visual art that I reference in the book, you know, to look at a Micheline Thomas work and say like, what is what is this but a poem? Mm-hmm. Um, so so that does was that kind, kind of, of translation absolutely. play like a lot of totally. a, a big role in your poetry? Mm-hmm, then? Mm-hmm. And also translation of of selves, you know. So it's like yeah. translation between these other mediums, but also like, I mean, the book is so much about performance and like everyday performance, not just the kind of celebrity Super Bowl stage performance which was just a lens to talk about the fact that we're all performing all the time mm-hmm. and kind of like figuring out how to be. And, and that is a kind of translation as well, um, depending on who you're talking to, like what space you're in, sure. how you're right. feeling, what you want, you know, like mm-hmm. that. Um, and I, I'm very intrigued by that idea of like kind of the multiple selves and like honoring all of them. Um, so and that that not being a crisis of authenticity, absolutely, right? That it's absolutely. like it's not a mask. It's right. just there's it's different just, facets of mm-hmm. my experience, and they're all they all can exist, even when it feels. I mean, I think our society is like loves like a dichotomy, like an either or, Jekyll and Hyde, like whatever it binaries, may be. yeah. Um, and I that is really stressful to me, yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah. because I I think it's like, but can't I do this and this? I have to pick one, like that's. So the book is really pointing towards that type of multiplicity and, I don't know, making space for it. Like, it's okay to kind of be performing at the Super Bowl and feeling yourself, but then also, like, cry in a bathtub. Like, those, both, <laughs> right. those things can both be true, and, like, that doesn't have to be, like, you're out of your mind. You know, like, yeah. you're just regular. Right. Um, and that's being a person so much a thing of taste and discernment, too. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, if you like this one thing, sure. you can't like this other thing yeah. because it's either highbrow, lowbrow, mm-hmm. or yeah. or just not in the same genre. Totally. Uh, with music, I know that's actually a big thing. But. It really is. And I mean, that's something that I'm finding myself, ugh, and I, I hate these words, but I'm finding myself talking about them so much because of the book, this kind of like high art, low art. Like what is, I don't know. I mean, I, it's very unfair and it's kind of, I mean, it's really pretentious and elitist, but that was something that I really was pressing into. Um, in the writing, which was fun for me to just kind of be like, can I like reference Botticelli and Beyonce? Like, can I do that? (laughs) Um, And like, that's gonna upset your whole thing. And I kind of get a kick out of of that, like disturbing the system, I guess. What are you collecting right now? What are you, so you said you've moved on. You are thinking more about time. So what are you in the midst of gathering? So the new poems that I'm working on are, housed under, right now, kind of this book that I'm calling Magical Negro. Mm -hmm. And so I'm thinking about building kind of a cast of characters um, and voices that, in my mind, make up a kind of lineage, if that makes sense. Mm. So who are, like, the either pop cultural celebrities or Mm. biblical or, you know, who are these kind of characters that inform myself and the people around me, if that makes sense, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and kind of bringing them into the present. Um, I'm also, like, thinking a lot about um, anthropology and ethnography and kind of, like, data and um, archiving and cataloging, Mm. so, like, making a list of, here are some terms that we use, and, like, unpacking it in this really kind of, like, 
dry language, but it's something like um, the gap between Angela Davis's teeth. Like, for example, <laughs> this is kind oh, of like okay. what I'm up to. You know, like, uh, here yeah. is an, an artifact of. You know, it's a beautiful gap. It's a, it's a, that is like an As important artifact to catalog and put icon, a tag yeah. on. You know? Yes. So it's yeah. like things like that that I'm kind of like, okay. And then, like, you know, I don't know, the magical Negroes are like, one is uh, Gladys Knight in the 200th episode of The Jeffersons. <laughs> <laughs> so it's very specific. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Hyper specific. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I, li I like that. I think it's like really fun. Um, and it, obviously, there's their personal poems mm -hmm. m much of the time as well. So that's a, a way of kind of honoring the personal, um, I guess, like lineage and canon and um, that kind of catalog as next to the like societal one. And having them both be specific, uh, and both interchangeable, if that makes sense. Right, and to make sure that that's possible, because mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. it so often feels prohibitive to make that kind of pairing. Absolutely, and, yeah. yeah. To say like this is important because it is. Like right. I wouldn't be a person without this thing, you know. Mm -hmm. um, so that's fun. I've also been reading a lot of books about jokes and like jokes in the African-American community. Um, um, because I, one thing that I think about with the Sema Sema, like that's kind of, that's like deeply ingrained in just like my humor. Like it, mm -hmm. and it's very funny to me to think, um, I don't know, this kind of idea of reflecting on what's happening, but from a lens of the past and like what you felt before. Um, right. And kind of like laughing about that, like how ridiculous that all is. Like there's something that I'm kind of trying to work out in the realm of that specific type of humor. Um, so I've been reading about, I've been reading, I've been watching stand-up, I've been um, reading like autobiographies of comics, oh, okay. which mm. has been, yeah, really fun. Um, like political comics, really. I mean like, but like a Richard Pryor type, you know? Yeah. Where it's like, you're laughing, but it's like, it hurts. Right. Um, I love that stuff, you know? And I think that it's like a, it's like a coping mechanism, but it's also like, a, it's like regener regenerative in a, mm -hmm. in a way, like it's healing. And I think it's like, got a lot of links in a lot of different places, like back, back, back into time. So that's kind of what I'm hmm. playing around with. A lot of buckets happening. Yeah, yeah. It's good with. gathering, good gathering phase. I mean, right I'm now. a nerd. Yeah. I'm just like, take me to the library. Right. Like, you know, like, ooh. Speaking of nerd, um, you were telling us before before <laughs> before we went on air that the last time you were at the LA Times Book Festival, you were a baby. I'm just gonna call you a baby. I don't know how old you were. That's fine. Um, <laughs> and you sure sounded like a cute little nerd. And you told us about wearing a blazer. Yes. And that you were writing books then and so uh, we wanted to ask you what were the books that you were writing when you were a child so wow I mean shout out to kids wearing blazers <laughs> you know? it's obviously I did not have a lot of friends you know oh. what I mean um, because I was literally this person but a child it's know? lonely it's lonely it's a, in the vanguard yeah. it really is I mean sounds like terrifying like I'm an adult person but um yeah, I, my first story that I ever wrote was called The Perfect Pizza. Oh, it my was God. about a pizza. Well, this is getting and cuter and cuter. The mush, <laughs> Mr. Mushroom and Mr. Pepperoni like had a falling out. Why? I don't know. 
don't remember. <laughs> but it was like, then it was like disarray on the pizza. Yeah. Because they needed to both be there. <laughs> <laughs> and was that your most that favorite the, pizza? That was the narrative arc of this story. <laughs> wait, but is there a resolution? Oh, yeah. In what the happens? End, well, I guess it's called the perfect pizza. Yeah. So there must be a perfect pizza it, at the yes. end. Okay. So can you give away the ending or should we just all travel back oh. in time and read it? Oh, the pizza got it all. Every, all the ingredients were happy together. Oh, <laughs> yeah. This is a lovely That's story. That's beautiful. Yeah. yeah. I know. So uh, I think on that note, uh, <laughs> <laughs> let's end on a note of peace and say thank you so much, Morgan Parker, for being here. Thank you. Thank it you was for great coming. to talk thank to you. Thank you so much. We've been speaking with Morgan Parker. She is the author of There Are More Beautiful Things Than Beyonce. You're listening to the LARB Radio Hour. That was Morgan Parker, recorded live at the LA Times Festival of Books. She's the author of There Are More Beautiful Things Than Beyonce. And now for our interview with Fiona Mazel, author of A Little More Human. the LA Times Festival of Books and we're recording live and we're talking to Fiona Mazel who is a novelist and a professor at Syracuse University. Fiona's the author of the novels Last Last Chance, Woke Up Lonely, and most recently A Little More Human which was published by Grey Wolf this year. A 2017 Guggenheim Fellow and winner of the Bard Prize for Fiction, she lives in Brooklyn. One second, Kate. I would like to pronounce Fiona's name correctly. Oh, did I pronounce it's, it wrong? Uh, <laughs> it rhymes with gazelle. Oh. Mazel. You will never forget that now. But I Mazel. thought mazel like mazel talk. Yeah, but, yeah. Uh, but no. <laughs> I'm so embarrassed. <laughs> but there would be no way for you to know that. So we were hoping you would tell us about your new book. We, the plot sounds wild. It is a little wild. Uh, it is primarily about uh, a guy named Phil Snyder. He works as a licensed nursing assistant for a, a kind of creepy bioengineering uh, center for advanced enhancement human technology. Uh, he also moonlights as like a, a superhero. He dresses up as a superhero from a, a rather popular movie. It's called Brainstorm. So he dresses up like Brainstorm and he does these sort of events and incidentally he uh, Brainstorm's distinguishing features that he can read minds but as it turns out uh, Phil can also read minds for real. So the novel is about him and what happens when he wakes up one morning having no recollection of what he did the night before only to be presented with evidence that he assaulted essentially raped a woman and he then spends the rest of the novel trying to figure out if he did or did not do this horrible thing. There's a supporting cast of characters. There's a woman named Ada who is trying to scam her way into getting some money to uh, pay for her mother's new bioengineered heart. And there is um, Phil's father, Doc, who is uh, a neuroscientist who works at this kind of creepy center for technology advancement, who is on the verge of, of Alzheimer's. So we follow these three characters. There's a kind of a crazy conspiracy. It's a little bit of a thriller. It's kind of a domestic drama. Wow. I'm told it's some kind of new genre, yeah. which you know I hadn't really tried to develop, but there it is. And, and where so so something that that's that kind of inventive 
and complicated. I'm assuming it's not just one instance or one thing that inspired the novel. It must have been a, a variety of things kind of all converging. Would you describe it like that? Or? That's right. I mean, I think a lot, when I try to talk about my process, I think a lot about maybe like how an Anne Carson poem reads, where she just sort of grabs mm. things out of the universe, like crayon, you know, <laughs> athlete's foot, and snow cones. And somehow she it's manages... It's a famous poem. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it won the Pulitzer. She, you know, she just manages to kind of hybridize all these things that seem maybe disparate at first, but which kind of become harmonious when they're when you uh, you sort of impose a certain form on them. So you know, I've kind of largely interested in particular kinds of brain technology, and uh, I came across a rather alarming study, at least to me, about this split brain patient. And I'll kind of condense the experiment for you and just say that there is this patient. His brain was split. You know, his corpus callosum had been rent in half. And scientists were able, through various means, to communicate with both halves of his brain separately. And they asked him a question, and what they did was they managed to make sure that at any given moment only one half of his brain had all the necessary information in order to answer the question. Mm. So they may say, you know, do you like your, and then spell the word mom and cover one of his eyes. So they asked him what he wanted to be, and one half of his brain said like a draftsman, and the other half of his brain said race car driver. And I just thought, well, this is just nuts. That's amazing. You know, this is so crazy. Wow. This is, you know, there was a kind of biological rendering of what evolution has managed to kind of gag, which is this other half of our brain. What happens if all of us are just walking around with these kind of with dual personalities and we just don't don't know it? Well, that's but amazing. we are, right? Yeah, right. I mean, that's like are, what, one of the things that's strange to me is that that is totally makes sense to like one's waking life that it's like you're constantly either suppressing one thought and then enunciating right. another or guess, that you're like it's a discombobulated jumble of things that's right and I guess what I would say to that is that you know we're always repressing feelings that seem untoward or challenging or alarming and those feelings become kind of unconscious but this was to me a little different because these were thoughts that that were not worth repressing at all they were just mm, entirely mm, different they were yeah. just incompatible so I kind of started to roll with this idea and, you know, when I'm thinking about this character, Phil, who asks himself, what am I capable of? And what have I done? And who am I? This became a kind of interesting proxy for how to talk about that problem of, you know, being so utterly emotion and, and emotionally incoherent to yourself that you just cannot function. So that was one impetus for the novel. The other one, believe it or not, was the quarterback, Brett Favre. <laughs> who I've talked about at some length. You remember, you remember between like 2008 and 2012 or something, he came out of retirement like five times. He just could not decide if he was going to retire or not retire, was he going to play ball or not play ball. And everyone just thought, ah, oh, he's just so capricious and he is choosing between the money or the kind of the good life. But I imposed on him an entirely different narrative. And I started to think of Brett Favre as a man who just simply had no idea what he wanted just had no clue who he was. And I began to see this as a kind of debilitating condition to be in. I mean, I recognize it's ridiculous to pity Brett Favre, but if you take him out of context, right. you know, it seemed plausible that here was this kind of iconic rendering of someone who just is incoherent to himself. So I was thinking about that. It's interesting. And uh, also, you know, the book starts with the, with the line, uh, he came to on the back of a horse, which I actually overheard someone say many years ago. Wow. Uh, the context in which I heard him say this sort of made sense, but, you know, he, he woke up that morning on the back of a horse in Prospect Park, which is just bizarre. It's not like this was Wyoming, where that maybe happens with some plausible degree of frequency. Wow. <laughs> but in Prospect Park, it doesn't happen so much. In New York City, you know, wow. Prospect Park, Brooklyn. And I heard that, I filed it away, and I thought, I'm going to use that. Was there something recently where you found yourself sort of pulled in two different directions? And you couldn't figure out, you were, you were Brett Favre? And you didn't know which way to go? 
Yes. In <laughs> fact, a third or fourth, or maybe I'm on my ninth impetus for the novel, was I have a, this autoimmune disease, kind of a mm-hmm. stomach thing. And so I had heard from some people that if you went and got hypnotized, you know, perhaps this would be a good mm. solution. This, this might work. So I, I went to go and try and get hypnotized. Wow. And as a precursor to being hypnotized, I had to kind of get to know this hypnotist who was also a therapist and so we met a few times and it became abundantly clear to the two of us that I could not be hypnotized because I was so terrorized by being penetrated by this sort of alien invader like what was she going to leave in my head Mm -hmm. but in the process of our conversation she would ask me things like well well what do you want what do you really want and I found these questions like weirdly hostile and aggressive even though of course they were anodyne in the extreme but I just felt so threatened by this idea that I not only couldn't tell her what I wanted it was more that I wanted diametrically opposed things equally and you know I found this paralyzing you know in a way and so that too became something and there is actually an extended scene in which Phil goes to a hypnotist and has uh, a somewhat of a, a freak out that actually quite resembles the one I had. Wow. Really? You know, yes, in the aftermath of my experience with the hypnotist. So you never went under hypnosis? No. No, I couldn't be hypnotized. I just, I had too much resistance. I was too well defended. I just was not prepared to give myself over. Do you take secret pride in that? No. (laughs) I think I would. I mean, there's that there's some strength there that is impenetrable somewhere. I, well, that's a positive way of that looking at it. That is a generous it. way. To me, of I just felt yeah. like you know, you never want to hear from someone whose job it is to help you that you cannot be helped. <laughs> right. no, that's not anything you ever want anyone to right. say to you. Right. And I also just felt, you know, I. I want to be able to control my defenses. I want to be able to lower them when I want to lower them. You know, and when it's I, useful. I, yeah, I want to be able to make myself vulnerable and available to the world as needed. Mm-hmm. And strength to me feels more like, you know, I can decide when I'm strong and I'm well defended and, and when I'm available. And I was just in no position to, do, I was just, I'm a Gothic cathedral apparently in terms of my defenses. <laughs> that could change. What was it like then to write about somebody who is a mind reader, right? He's a telepath. So that's somebody that can actually get through that cathedral without any kind of defense, right? It was fun. (laughs) It was really fun. I mean, he's not a very good mind reader. Oh, right. That's right. And the way it works is different than one would expect. Yeah, well, in the beginning, I mean, the problem with him is that he never chooses to read the right person's mind. That's his problem, is that he's very trusting. He doesn't see any reason to do it. So he doesn't do it. So he's selective, and thus he often chooses poorly. And then at a certain point, his mind reading capacities change, and he's able to do things that are even more outlandish than just reading minds. He's suddenly able to recreate people's experiences with him mm. so long as he's with them, which is, you know, who doesn't want to have that talent? You know, take two. <laughs> you know, he can take as many as he likes. But, I mean, it was fun. It, was, it wasn't sort of liberating, you know, in a way. I didn't sort of map myself onto him. And also, I'm much more interested in allowing people to read my mind than I am in actually reading theirs. So it was kind of interesting Thanks. to think about this from a different sort of perspective. Maybe my next book will be about someone who just is so transparent that you know has to be, I don't know, hopelessly transparent. You I'm know, always we'll afraid see. that people can read my mind. A friend of mine a while ago described fatherhood as a restructuring of the house of yourself mm. and that having children, and, and it was a really beautiful thought about fatherhood, but that what children do is essentially create doors when there were walls before. And because they own your body in this way that, you know, it's suddenly totally theirs and they sort of are, are free with it in a way mm-hmm. that you don't have with other people, thank God, because yeah. it would be horrifying. <laughs> it's true. Um, have you found that to be the case as a mom? 
I mean, I have a two and a half year old, so <laughs> we're really in it at the moment. <laughs> yeah. I have found that the door she's opened, I mean, I, I've always felt, I mean, I hope in any case, you know, that I've always been a, a kind of a loving person, but I always felt like, you know, I, ha- I mean, this is way off topic at this point, but, you know, while we're doing therapy hour with Fiona, <laughs> I mean, I always Please. felt like, you know, I have a lot of love to give and maybe not enough places to bestow it. And then suddenly this child appeared and now, mm-hmm. it's, you know, so th- in that sense, you know, the floodgates open for sure. Right. And, you know, I, I feel that um, I'm much more easily hurt because I everything hurts me now you know I just I watch commercials and I start crying you know so those kind of doors are are open anything that features a little child immediately puts me in some state of uh, you know ecstasy or agony depending on what I'm looking at wait until they become teenagers I know (laughs) Uh, I changes I'm told (laughs) I wonder if if you're so responsive if basically the novel is a way to assimilate many things are you wary when you're writing of what you take in do you have a, like rules about reading? Do you have rules about watching? Or are you just happy to kind of let everything come? No, no, okay. I need to, it's a good question. I need to be very disciplined because I am so attracted to everything. Right. You know, and I'm sort of more inclined to write like a prog rock kind of novel than <laughs> kind of your straight story. So discipline is for me incredibly important. I mean, my first book, my book in a drawer, you know, I had this idea like, oh, I'm going to write a novel and I can put anything in there I want. And that turns out not to be true. And I think a good criticism levied against my first published novel was that it didn't always have the kind of, it didn't always have a sense of urgency. Things felt at times somewhat arbitrary because it maybe was clear to the reader, who was very bright, that I was just sort of grabbing things that were of interest to me in the moment. And I hope I have not made that mistake again in the two novels that have since followed because I really now impose, I try to impose uh, a good deal of discipline on the choices I'm making and the bar for inclusion now is actually very high. Even though I am pulling a lot of stuff in, it's really not as random as, you know, oatmeal and talcum powder and, you know, <laughs> soup and Is that the other Ann Carson poem that yes. you yes. talk about? Poem is amazing. Yeah. It's, it's not actually arbitrary at all. You know, right. you try to find thematically what tethers all of these things sort of together. And if the tether seems uh, loose or at worst, you know, phony, then you just, you just don't go there. Right, right, right. And yeah. how about... Uh, the actual writing process, do you keep yourself on a schedule or are you just someone who works when you can work and... At this point, I mean, the, the kid, that's a, yeah, the kid has changed a lot of that. And I do have a full-time job. I work four days a week for a nonprofit wow. organization. So my oh, wow. writing life has been severely diminished. Wow. But, and I teach a good deal. But thanks to my Guggenheim, some of that's going to change. Yes, good. So I will be taking, thank you. I will be taking a, a year off from teaching to try to find more time to do my own work. Good. But I've never been particularly disciplined anyway. For me, what's always worked is I will go off to one of these amazing writer's colonies. Unfortunately, none of them are available to me until my daughter's, you know, 15 or something. Thing. But I used to go to like a Yado or a McDowell and just pound out a draft or a big, huge chunks of a book and then spend, you know, years revising. And, and now I just don't quite have that freedom anymore. So I don't know what my writing process is going to look in the future. I think I'll have to get a lot more done in the less time. Did you ever read um, the book by Heidi Julevitz, The Folded Clock? I have not read that. I've read The Vanishers, though. Is that what it's that called? Is, it's called The Vanishers, uh, right? Yes, I think that's right. I think, she I think talks so. about falling in love at residencies. Do you find that to be the case? Well, I fell in love with Heidi. <laughs> <laughs> Heidi and I met at McDowell, and you know, we instantly hit it off. I think she's so terrific. But she met her husband Ben at, That's right. at a writing colony. Um, no, I've never actually fallen in love with with anyone. I'm basically sitting in my room and I hear this kind of ambient sound and you think it's like the crickets but what it really is is the sound of everyone else typing but you (laughs) and so I feel sort of like a kind of um, urgency and anxiety about 
making sure that I really capitalize on that time. Uh, no, have I ever met a guy at, at, at Colin? No. No, it has not okay. happened. But there's time yet. And so are you Absolutely. working on something new? If by working you mean thinking about, okay. then sure. yes. Yes. Yes, I actually started something a couple years ago at Yato. It's about, I think it's about female rage yeah, and great. the 2008 financial meltdown and sort of apathy and inertia and how all these things work together. My ambition for the novel is that it should be a lot more quiet, actually, less antic, less plotted, a first-person story, and I really have to stick with this one guy. I can't just sort of go off discursively and joyously, you know, into the wilderness with mm. other characters. But we'll see. It's interesting how, for me, like, that is a conceit. Like, a straight story is a conceit for me. So I'm going to try and see if I can't formally impose those constraints. And so I think that's maybe what it's going to be about, but we'll see. Mm -hmm. Is the um, kind of contemporary political moment, the deeply weird, terrifying political moment that we're in right now, impacting in any way how you think about a narrative on female rage? <sighs> feminist rage? It seems slightly more important now yes. than it did when I started the project, you know, a couple years ago. But, I mean, you know, our president has just exposed what's latent anyway in the culture. True. I feel that there is just an urgency in general about artists of all kinds getting their voices out there in any medium they can. I've always felt that way. Yeah. I've spent a lot of time, though, telling my students, you know, that process is its own reward. You need to really enjoy what you do. Publication is wonderful, but that should not be you know, the driving force. My feelings about that have changed a little bit. Not that I don't think that process is its own reward, but that to me it seems more important than ever that we make ourselves heard, we get our voices out there, and we do the kind of work that kind of rolls back on tyranny, on intolerance, on, you know, oppression, on genocide, on racism, homophobia, all those things. And that's, you know, what art often does in multitude of, of mm -hmm. ways. So yeah, I'm now encouraging, and especially with my female students in particular, I'm really pushing them out and making sure that they feel confident and ready to get out there and wage war. Yeah. Because that's what Grace. we're in right now. Yeah. It's a little bit of a war. Very much it so. is. Yeah. I have found with my students that the female students do need more encouragement in that sense. Yeah. They do. Yeah. They do. And it's that's because it's hard out there, you know? I mean, I've been lucky not to kind of face a gross amount of misogyny thus far in my career, but I have encountered it and it has been, you know, demeaning and debilitating and it's it's hard out there, you it know, is. and it starts yeah. it starts from the moment you start school. So the girls, my, my female students, they need encouragement. I have a great class at Syracuse this semester and my I mean, all my students are great. My female students, though, they're fiercely intelligent. I mean, you know, these women should go out there and take over the world. Yeah. That's well. my plan for them. That's a Great. nice place to end. I wish you were my teacher. Okay. <laughs> well, Fiona Mazel, thank you so much for being here and um, speaking with us. And your new book is A Little More Human, which was published by Grey Wolf this year. That was Fiona Mazel, author of A Little More Human, a novel from our interview with her at the LA Times Festival of Books. And now for our interview with Joyce Carol Oates. This is Kate Wolf for the LARB Radio Hour, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Eric Newman and Medea Ocher. And we're very, very excited because we also have here Joyce Carol Oates, who is the author of over 40 novels, as well as novellas, poetry, and short stories. 
Joyce Carol Oates won a National Book Award in Fiction for her novel Them in 1970. She has been a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize for Fiction five times, has been awarded with two O. Henry Awards, and she's received a National Humanities Medal as well as a Guggenheim Fellowship for Creative Arts. Her newest novel is A Book of American Martyrs. Thank you, Joyce Carlos, for being here. Thank you for inviting me. It's an honor to have you. So tell us about your newest book. Um, how long has it been out now, and what kind of response have you gotten to it? Well, the novel is unusual in my experience because I wrote it a couple of years ago about a situation in America I saw as potential. But since the election of 2016, it's more or less become like real life. So that was um, startling. I mean, we'd rather go back in time and not have this device of reality. So the novel is somewhat prescient. Right. And it came out um, maybe a month or so ago. Okay. And remind, just for readers who haven't read it, tell us yes. a little more what it's about. Um, a Book of American Martyrs is basically about the split in, in America between very uh, rather right-wing Christian evangelical people, citizens, who are very idealistic and sincere in their beliefs, and then maybe possibly more educated people who are skeptical and secular. It's about religious and secular America and how they are in contention. But as I said, when I was writing it, it didn't seem that it would be quite so dramatic and vivid as it is right now. Right, right. And have been people been responding to the book very much based on the election or... Well, the reviews have been maybe by literary people who are looking at it as literature and uh, have received some letters, one just recently from an abortion provider who said he'd been an abortion doctor for 20 years and he really identified with the novel and found it very, very gripping and, and moving and upsetting. And how do you, how do you see the tension between secular and religious America right now? Is what, what are you seeing as a focal point in it? Obviously, abortion is one of them, but... Well, I think, frankly, that the, the right-wing Republicans and their multi-billionaire donors are using the evangelical, using the religious issue for political purposes. I don't think there is a religious majority in the country that would have so much power. It's a kind of fluke of the past election where Donald Trump was exploiting maybe the naivete of some voters, and he doesn't really believe in these things and doesn't really care about them. I mean, he doesn't really care whether Roe versus Wade is over, overthrown, but it's a useful election ploy and really swept him in the office. One of the things that I was thinking about is that part of the project of the book, maybe not the project, but the structure of it, is to really inhabit like two sides yes. of a very like heated and visceral conflict yes. for, for many people. It seems to me both the thing we absolutely need the most right now, right, to be able to think about like both sides and understand one another, but I wondered, in fiction that might be possible, do you think that's possible in real life? Well, that's a good question. I, I think the two sides are not really talking. I think there's an abyss between uh, right. secular people and really extreme religious people. I don't mean most religious people, but these are extreme people who would actually die for their beliefs, and that's, right. that's quite rare. I don't think there's a dialogue much. I mean, I'm not seeing that there is. People said to divide themselves into two camps, and some watch Fox News and some watch MSNBC, you know, and they right. probably don't overlap. Do you think fiction plays a role in that dialogue? 
or whether it happens or not? Well, fiction and, and films and television, I think, would allow us to see the humanity be, behind the issues so that we see the people and we feel that maybe they could be reasoned with. I frankly feel that they've been brainwashed, they've been manipulated. I don't think they're really that, uh, that opposed to the ideas many of us have, but they've gotten into the mindset where their morality should be imposed on everybody. Um, right. It's a democracy, and so we shouldn't be imposing our beliefs on one another. That's, that's the fallacy. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And that, did you do research in terms of, what kind of research did you do for the book? Um, did you spend time reading you know, publications you wouldn't normally read, for instance, or how did you get in the mind of evangelical Christians? Oh, yes, I did, I did some research, and I read, the, I read books about George Tiller, the um, abortion provider from Kansas who was assassinated. My, my character is not really George Tiller, but it's sort of the same kind of ambience. Is this a late, late-term abortion doctor? or Well, he did all sorts of things. I mean, right. he was basically there to service women and girls. And I think people don't understand that it's the women and girls desperate for, the desperate for medical care that creates the abortion provider. A person doesn't set out to be an abortion provider. It's really the other way around. And then I, I um, saw some films and I did a lot of reading and online and books and mm -hmm. usual. I mean, I do a lot of research. How, yeah, so you're kind of obviously known for your prolificness. I mean, people are marvel at how, how much you've written. What is your, do you have a normal timeline or is every book different? Oh, every book's different. I tend to work on a novel and, and have it in a folder and then I may work on another novel in between and it's sort of like a slow process. It seems to other people that I'm writing quickly, but it isn't really that quick. It's more like I write every day and I right. write kind of slowly in the morning. And You're steady. Guys, slow and steady <laughs> and every morning and, and at night. And when I travel, I work on the airplane. It's kind of steady. Well, so you write in the morning and at night? Oh, yes. Okay, okay. Yeah. So that is, I mean, that's a good day's and you and you probably go teach in between or something. I only teach one day a week. Oh, okay, okay. So okay. it's not too bad. Okay, that's great. And has that consistently been your pattern that you started when you first started out writing and just kept with what worked for you? Or? Well, when I first was teaching, I had four courses. Okay. Now I only have one course, okay. so that was a long time ago. And I really was working very hard then. I think now is not quite as much pressure. Oh, that's good. Yeah. How does it feel for you when you finish a book? having finished 40 by now. Like, do Over you want 40. to return to it? Is it difficult to let go of? They're all a little difficult to let go of because you go from finishing something where you feel really happy about it to beginning a new project where you're groping and faltering and don't know what it is exactly. So that's a loss of that sense of control. It's a difference between making your way through underbrush up a hill and already being up on a mountain, you know, looking down. So being up on a mountain looking down is a much better experience than being... Than crawling you know, up. The but you sort of have to do both of them. Yeah. And what are you uh, working on now? Right now I'm working on a short story that's getting longer. It's on the theme of hauntedness, being haunted. So as you probably know, Sylvia Plath committed suicide and her husband, Ted Hughes, remarried. And the second wife also committed suicide, and this time with a little baby. And I wanted to write a story about who would be the second wife who would follow a famous poet suicide. How would it be to be that wife? 
and, and what would drive you and trying to see how plausible it would be that you might follow in the same pattern. But it's not literally about Sylvia Plath, it's about the idea. So that's what I'm working on. And, and it's, are you approaching it from the perspective of that second, second, wife. second wife? Yes, and the first wife is sort of a mystery because she's never met her. Uh -huh. It's like the image right. and the, the icon and how horrible and haunted you'd be. That sounds fascinating. Yeah, that it sounds does. great. It's very challenging and, and kind of scary. Mm -hmm. Do you? So you've written a lot of gothic stories and, and novels. Do you have a litmus test for when something is working? Do you feel? Do you scare yourself? Do you? How when you're dealing with kind of more dark themes in your fiction? How do you um, handle those? It's like a dream. You sort of you're groping and you feel that this. This is working really well. It is kind of scary. If something's matter of fact and bland, then you don't really want that. Mm -hmm. You know, it's more like something that's unpredictable, a little bit of a surprise. That's how I'm guided. Do you have any personal ghost stories? In my own life? Mm -hmm. No. No, I don't believe in ghosts. Huh. <laughs> I, maybe that's why you're able to write about them. I'm not sure how really how to answer that. Each story has its own kind of integrity and its own challenges. But I think they unfold almost like a dream where you're, you're experiencing something that seems intuitively correct. And it's more like you're creating it or composing it as in a dream. And that story you mentioned in, that you're working on, when can we expect to read that? Oh, or I don't know. I'm okay. just working on it right now. Okay. 2018, probably. Okay. Okay. So we'll look forward to that and maybe okay. some other things in between. Good. But thank you okay. so much, Joyce Carols, for being here today thank and you. speaking with us. Thank, thank you. you. Special thanks to William Broden for his help recording all of these interviews live at the LA Times Festival of Books. He did an amazing job. Thank you, William. You've been listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Our executive producers are Medea Ocher and Kate Wolf. Editorial advisor is Janice Rochelle Littlejohn. Our engineer is Ernesto Orellano. Our researcher is Chloe Chapp. Production volunteer is Jake Levins. Special thanks to Alan Minsky, who is no one's moral conscience, for production assistance and to Emerson College for the use of their beautiful studios. Tom Lutz is the editor-in-chief and publisher of the Los Angeles Review of Books. Mm -hmm.